0: Listening to the Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White.
1: Welcome to the Cooler Ring, a podcast for manufacturing marketers, brought to you by Cooler Partners. My name is Jeff White, and joining me today is Carmen Perry. Carmen, how are you doing, sir? Look, I am. I'm well, and uh, Jeff, I've got to say, today's conversation that
2: we have teed up here, I think. Look, I, I mean, I don't want to uh, suggest to the listeners that I typically know what's going on because I often don't, and I cannot quite predict
1: what's going to happen in these shows. But yeah.
2: this one feels even looser than normal.
1: Well, you know, and, and I, I think we're outmatched. I <laughs> think it's going to be an interesting uh, dialogue, <laughs> and, uh, and,
2: and I really like the concept that we're covering today, and uh, I think it's. Um, Uh, ripe for being contrarian, which is something Mm. I generally embrace. So let's uh, let's give it a go. Let's see where we go. And I don't know. It could be a complete and utter disaster.
1: (laughs) I I don't see it. I think it's going to be good, but uh, I do think it's going to be unpredictable. All right. Yeah. So uh, joining us today is David Kerner. David is the VP of Global Marketing for 75F. Welcome to the Cooler Ring, David. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Carmen. Thanks for having me. David, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, Look, let's... uh, uh, Tell,
2: tell our listeners what 75F is before we uh, dive into the
3: topic of today's show. With both, Sure. We're a Bill Gates-back tech company. We're based in Minneapolis. We design and manufacture smart sensors and controls to make commercial buildings healthier, more efficient, more comfortable. Um, we're uh, one of the leading IoT-based building automation companies and we recently announced a large investment from Siemens, traditionally one of our competitors. So uh, that was very exciting. We work primarily with offices, uh, with offices, and with manufacturing facilities where there's a lot of mixed spaces. That's a loading dock, a warehouse, um, you know, maybe some manufacturing lines, and a bunch of administrative offices. And we lower energy in those spaces while improving indoor air quality with. Um, with a control system that works out of the box is an old and is a lot different from existing systems today.
1: I think it's fair to say that you probably see yourselves uh, as a, not necessarily a newcomer, but certainly somebody with a different perspective from uh, a lot of your more established competitors. Yeah.
3: Sure. We view ourselves as a disruptor, but in order to be a disruptor, you have to disrupt and we haven't quite disrupted yet, but we're working on it. I think, uh, when we turn competitors into partners, which was one of our COVID strategies, um, which is something that you see, I believe, with the Siemens investment, then it's uh it's a sign that we're moving in the right direction. We're moving towards uh being the disruptor that we'd like to be.
2: I gotta say, as a as a marketer, I don't envy you at all in this uh and that your target audience, basically people responsible for making these decisions in commercial buildings, can be incredibly difficult people to reach.
3: Extremely difficult, yeah. And a very difficult space dominated by five large competitors um, Honeywell, ABB, Schneider, Carrier have done a great job um, for a long time. But the products that we're competing with, in many cases, are collecting social security. I mean, these are very old systems. they're wired, they're overbuilt for most customers. And so what you see instead in most buildings is uh, you know you're told not to touch the thermostat on the wall or it's too hot or too cold in a conference room or um, you know essentially the system isn't working for the building. And so we've made a lot of headway because we have a lightweight product that works and is um, able to bring buildings and customers online built-in analytics and uh, help customers get on a path to carbon neutral. So essentially we're competing against these huge competitors and we're trying to do it in a new way.
2: And the new way that we're here to talk about today is this notion of of, uh, striving to be asymmetric and kind of unpacking, I guess, everything that that means. And I and and I've got to admit, you, you led me down the path of suggesting we were going to talk about this before you told me about the Siemens investment. Right? <laughs> I mean, so now we have a like, I had this David Goliath thing, but I didn't know <laughs> David and Goliath were in bed it's together until just now.
3: It's still David. We moved from pebbles to full size rocks, but we it's still still got it,
1: David. It's still got to a slingshot us. against the cannon. That's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah.
3: So so
2: what do you mean by this? I mean, uh, I think the notion marketing to be. Uh, asymmetric could mean a lot of different things to so different people. So, tell me what you mean by it.
3: Yeah, Carmen, I started at 3M. I, I spent eight years there, and 3M is a company, um, one of the world's great manufacturers, very good at being big. Um, you know, leading with a big chip stack. And when I joined tech startups, I joined because um, you know I wanted to have more control or run the show or something. And what took me a long time to adjust to wasn't that it was much more tactical than I was used to as much as it was that the strategy fundamentally had to change. It took me like five years to figure out that, um, you know, without 3M you're starting with, with nothing. And, uh, I was under-resourced to competitors. We were launching products in new spaces. We were trying to define new categories all the time. We had an incredibly difficult time changing consumer behavior. And, um, and And that caused a lot of frustration before I landed on this um, on on some of this these ideas about asymmetry that I was hearing out in the uh, the marketing space that really resonated with me. Essentially, this idea that if you have to take the the four lane highway into Baghdad or the single dusty, sandy track, you should always lead your tanks down the sandy track. Like that's always going to be higher ROI activity. Um you should never be doing something that your competitors can do better than you. If it ever comes down to who has more resources, then we're gonna lose because we don't have the the content teams, we don't have the 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 growth tactics that our competitors do.
1: yeah, media spend alone is just so against. so hard to, so go hard to overcome, yeah, yeah,
3: so how I guess
2: you know part of what you Paint there david is sounds like it's just this endless quest for new in some way um that 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 kind of any new th- though it can be it can just be different well or t- yeah so that's why i'm kind of wondering kind yeah. of is can it can to be a tactic done in a different way i guess how do we uh how, how do or does it just lead to a point where you're just kind of jumping on the absolute latest and greatest thing because it's new
3: That's probably a mistake marketers make. I don't know what you guys think, but I feel like nobody loves new more than marketers. Um, The thing I'm hearing about right now is uh, Zuckerberg's um, metaverse and what metaverse means or meta, whatever it is. I think it's all BS, but um, I think uh, there's also... Probably uh, this problem that we want precise answers that are wrong instead of vague answers that feel right. So we um, can invest some money in something new in order to uh, you know kind of reduce risk or something. But um, I, I don't think it's, it's constantly chasing after what's new. I think it's just questioning what we think about our customers, our marketing organization or where our spend is going. And that questioning what we think means that we do a lot of unconventional things here. We shut down our Facebook page um, shortly after I joined. We we shut down our blog completely. Um, We do occasionally post, but not very often. And that just was a conversation about, like, what would Honeywell do? We share a city with them. They have 23 or 26 content writers within their business team. Like, how is my team of seven or nine people going to compete with Honeywell's newsroom of content writers, um, like would Honeywell do this? If the answer is ever yes, then we should probably kill it off. And that means they have more channels. They're going to have a TikTok and a Snap and an Insta and all this other stuff. Um, so let's let's cut that right away. And then they're going to have uh, much richer content. They're going to take industry positions that. Um, You know, try to influence customer sentiment about the future of smart buildings or smart cities. We need to avoid all those places, not just the um, channel, but the message and tone. Those are places where we're never going to win long term.
2: This is interesting to me, this notion, because it happens in almost every industry. There gets to be a bit of a song sheet that every competitor seems to be singing from. You know, uh, the, pa- the the packaging space I always like to beat up on. We have a number of flexible packaging customers, um, and maybe that's why. Um, but, I mean, every, they all want to bang the drum of sustainability, um, and, and they all sound exactly the same in doing so, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, so it, some of it takes the courage to kind of talk about it in different ways that the leaders aren't. Um, I feel like that's at least part of what you're telling me here, David.
3: Yeah, Of course, yeah. the The most awkward thing is usually when I explain it to a founder. Um, I was a fractional CMO for a while, so I got a chance to talk about this, and then I moved, um, you know, client side with a full time role here, and now I get a chance to actually do it. <laughs> and the uh, the most common thing that I hear from a founder is, "Well, what are you going to do then?" Uh, you know, I say we are completely wasting money on our paid social spend. So we shouldn't be doing it. And um, most of our content is is meaningless and ineffective. And we should be shutting down most of our content um, also. And um, you know, our white papers, we don't have high engagement. So let's consider killing off some of those. Then they're like, what, what's
1: left? Um, like David,
2: this is great. You're telling me all this stuff I can't do.
1: <laughs> Look at how much money we just saved. Yeah, though. N- now what? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And the answer,
3: of course, is you're doing everything you were doing in the in the '90s, in the '80s, going back to the beginning of marketing. Um, all that is still there. Let's just revisit what those things are. Um, you know, let's go meet customers where they are. Let's tell a clear and consistent message to the widest possible audience, um, and let's. Have conversations about how to get really creative and stay really asymmetric and edgy um, with the stuff that we're doing, and I think maybe there's a bigger uh, a bigger concept that feeds into this 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 belief I have in asymmetry, and that's that um, marketing doesn't work as good as we think it does, and um, maybe that's you know I think authenticity is a word that's certainly overused, but that seems very authentic to me that um, marketing doesn't work as good as we think it does um i don't know what do you guys think you you've you work with manufacturers every day does marketing work as good as we think
2: well i think it's hard to paint marketing and all marketing tactics with a with with one brush but i think one thing we do know is that there's more tactics out there than there have ever been um and i think for most manufacturing marketers it does feel a lot like whack-a-mole um (laughs)
3: Uh, Sure, you can't be everywhere. So, you know what? How do how do I succeed?
2: It can be harder to know where to be, where to focus the energy and attention. I think Uh, I think that's a fair fair comment. Um, And and it can be, and even in a day where where it's easier than ever to have revenue attribution to marketing tactics, um, man, the the number of marketers actually know what part of their marketing spend works versus doesn't is very slim.
3: Well, let's put it this way: you engage with 70 brands or products a day. Does their marketing work as good as they think it does on you? Because I'd argue that it probably doesn't. We're we're completely inundated by spam messages and cold LinkedIn requests and every other thing. And um, I don't love any, almost any of the products I'm going to use today. Um, I certainly love it a lot less than those marketers think I do. So doesn't it then follow that marketing is working a heck of a lot less than we think it does?
1: uh, In a lot of cases, it probably, you know, as with anything, it matters where and to whom you're speaking. So I think
2: David's point is well taken though, of course. I mean, we noticed that we know that uh, it was Dave Trott. I I love love quoting Dave on this podcast, but we're talking about how like 80 some odd percent of advertising is just not even seen. Right. It's, it's, It's not like a a negative uh, uh, perception would actually be better because at least it's left with, you're left with something. Yeah. Um, Right.
3: (laughs) The first rule of advertising is you have to get somebody's attention. And you know, if your display ads aren't, Pissing people off, then they're probably not getting anybody's attention
2: yeah. at all. I think your point too about uh, since, uh, since we brought up Dave Trot, I'll mention something else. That he, I was reading something from him or an interview or something where he talked about how um, somebody was critiquing. I think it was um, Burger King's advertising, and he was like, "Well, this that, people don't understand that Burger King has a different job in their advertising than McDonald's has." Uh, Burger King's job is to convince you to 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 switch from eating McDonald's burgers to eating Burger King burgers whereas McDonald's job is to convince you to eat more burgers knowing that if people eat more burgers more of them will be McDonald's burgers right because they're the market leader um and that I like that I was thinking about that as you were talking about this realization coming from 3m uh, to seventy five f which is really weird 3 m seventy five f we need to talk about that anyway That's um uh, <laughs> uh but but with that realization hold on a second the strategy needs to change what i'm trying to do is not even about the tactics yeah
1: they, they, is they even the same sport no yeah, yeah. Exactly right
2: yeah i don't know where i was going with that i'm sure there was a question in there david no sorry.
3: i think that's a, i think it's really interesting there's a, a rule here that we teach all new um sales or marketing folks we call it the five guys rule it could be called the burger king rule you know, the same thing, you got to focus on your super users. I think Burger King does that really well. Their um, throwback campaign that they're doing now is creative and fresh. It's new in the space. I don't pretend to know anything about, um, uh, you know, QSR restaurants and, and how to market to their customers. But just from the outside, it at least looks a lot different. I think what you see from McDonald's is a lot of, of compromising because their TAM, their total addressable market is, is much wider. They have the... The nostalgic grandparents that are remembering the, the olden days of car road trips and, um, you know, the soccer moms that want their kids to eat healthy and folks that are, have 30 minutes off work and just need to grab a quick bite to eat and somebody that wants a hamburger to actually taste good. And those four groups, um, you know, it's hard to come up with any kind of ad campaign uh, for, for any agency to succeed when that is your client. And then you add in all the wrinkles of the franchise owners and the and the weight that they hold within the McDonald's organization, and you and what you get is this McLoving it, you know, like watered down da 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 da, you know, kind of ad campaigns. And I guarantee that nobody's loving it. Like, uh, uh, man, I just blew every any shot I have of working at McDonald's. Uh. <laughs> yeah.
2: My guess is a market share. Not necessarily. Yeah, uh...
1: and, and that's just it. And that's you know that's a big part of what you're saying is that there's well, their job is—they they have they have uh, a great strength and a great market, and and mm-hmm. they will always—well, not always—but you know, Goliaths have been knocked off before. But you know, I think it is the job of the insurgent, the new guy, the you know, somebody else to, you know, in a lot of ways, what we're sort of talking about is going back and studying more Ogilvy and Doyle Dane Bernbach ads from the 60s and trying to understand how they talked about the up and comers than it is yeah, about maybe. trying to uh, be number one.
3: That's right. You know? I think so. So Burger King is solving their problem with, um, you know, creativity, this fresh campaign, um, perhaps understanding a narrower customer a younger customer, I think perhaps a little better, um, five guys is going even further their product and brand experience experience, but just talking about asymmetry, um, you know, we, we've used that word, but practically how would I launch a new burger franchise today? I Let's say I buy a couple of stores. Let's say my product is good. Um, one asymmetric way would be instead of investing the, uh, 72 million that McDonalds invests every year on social media, um uh their social media agencies and stuff, social media bias everywhere. You know, they have they have they not only have the Instagram and the Snap and all these other things, but they're posting like 12 times a day with very um asinine and generic messages that are appealing to a widest possible group of people. I mean, instead of that, take that money and just throw it off the roof. Um Throw it off the roof of the, your building. Announce on social media that in your White Plains burger location, you are going to throw your social media spend for that week, day, whatever, off the roof of your building. And I guarantee you, you'll generate more likes, follows, shares. You'll sell more burgers at that White Plains location than anything McDonald's is doing with their social spend. So when you're, when you're trying to be asymmetric, I think it means – getting very unconventional about um, the tactics that you're using to achieve a desired result. And, you know, throw it off the roof is one really easy way of, of asking whether, should we really be doing this thing? You know, um, is this something that customers actually want? Uh, Or should we just take, take the money, just throw it off the roof. And, and that would be a better use of funds.
1: Buy your customers.
3: Right. (laughs) Yeah,
2: <laughs> the, the throw it off the roof. Question: it's Not that bad of a yardstick. <laughs> no, it's actually. it's pretty good. And I mean, it's
1: all you know. We've talked about this in politics and and numerous other venues. I mean, as people well. we would
2: like to throw off. No, the roof? No, no. That <laughs> if we just instead took that
1: silly spend and uh, and threw the money out of a helicopter, it would probably benefit more people than yeah. it did the way it was spent.
0: Are your digital marketing efforts bringing in too many junk leads? Stop wasting time and distracting your sales team. Account based marketing can help give your marketing strategy, the laser focus on qualified buyers that you need to increase your pipeline velocity, close more deals and grow your business faster. We've created a sample manufacturing ABM plan to help you get started. Download the sample manufacturing ABM plan at bit.ly slash sample ABM. That's bit.ly slash sample ABM.
1: You know, obviously 75F is not going to throw their social media agency or spend off the roof. So what what are you doing now to create that asymmetric relationship with your customers? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Just so, to bring it back to manufacturing. As opposed course. to burgers, which was of fascinating. Yeah. No, no, no. So, now so, I'm hungry. Yeah.
3: yeah, so we did three things. In the pandemic, the first thing that we did is we shut down all of our live events. When I joined, we were doing about eight events per year. That might sound familiar to a lot of marketers out there. We moved from eight to 40 events per year. So huge event calendar, road teams, um, you know, bought some large TVs from China. Um, we had a bunch of, of, uh, branded merch that we also were ordering from China from the, from the Yeti store that actually manufactures Yeti coolers. You can get that uh, from China for $3.50 a bottle for everyone out there who might be interested in a lot of very nice Yeti coolers. So we had, we're doing all like the very classic, um, live event trade show stuff. Uh, just trying to punch above our weight at those trade shows. So for example, uh, the average 75F install is the equivalent of planting 161 trees. So we would give out trees at these trade shows, which if you've ever been to a HVAC industry event, um, you don't see a lot of people, uh, you know, with trees. We had one where we planned to bring in this enormous tree into the Vegas conference center and then just pitch out a grass lawn and some lawn chairs with a cooler beer and just invite people to come up, sit down in a lawn chair and talk to us under this tree that was in a pot that we brought back to the nursery when we were done. So we were we we're trying to be edgy and weird at live events. And then of course, COVID completely shut that down. Um, and in the process, I think cost us quite a bit of money. Um, we fired up webcasts and we started doing live webcasts with a bunch of uh guests and we started about a month and a half into the um into the pandemic simultaneously um some of those webcasts by the way were really good we had a a couple of schools we had a jewish school and a um and a catholic stem school uh both were attendees at a webcast that we did live here from a studio so that's um you know, sound deadening and cameras, uh, a videographer uh, at our biggest, I think we had roughly 3000 attendees. What we saw over time was steadily diminishing um, webcast attendees. Uh, Last fall was particularly bad. By February, it was looking pretty miserable, but we were doing just as much if not more work to try to book guests. Um, figure out COVID protocols, bring them all in, deal with last-minute cancellations, um, some of which were due to sicknesses and other things. And then this was like running a live show, and it was taking a huge amount of marketing effort. Um, And at our last one, I think we had down to 180 attendees. So at that point, um, we shut it down. And then we sat around doing what every asymmetric marketing team does and saying, well, we'll, well, what are we going to do now? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what are we going to do with all this money that, uh, you know, should we throw this off the roof now that we're not doing uh, a live webcast? The um, One of our early investors is Steve Case, the AOL guy. And uh, sorry, Steve, um, you know, maybe I should introduce you better than the AOL guy. But he has a great book. I'm going to plug your book, Steve. He, his book is um, The Third Wave. And he suggests that small startups like ours need to do three things. They need to persevere, like just, uh, you know, endlessly innovate. They need to um, focus on policy and they need to focus on partnerships. And during this last pandemic, while we were trying to figure out how uh, to fix some of our marketing, on the strategy and product side, we were following the Steve Case approach. So we created an industry um, group called the Coalition for Smarter Buildings. We basically reached out to competitors of ours in the space and said, um, you know, government's getting bigger, revenues are increasing, um there's a lot of demand for indoor air quality standards um governments around the world are pushing uh frameworks for expanding um building efficiency and um you know making commercial buildings safer healthier better so uh alone we can't compete against the big 5 and their huge lobbying teams but um together we can probably make a really meaningful impact here and uh, educate lawmakers about what companies like ours are doing. And so um, you know, we, we uh, got together and went to K Street and hired some lobbyists and um, we're working in a few different places on that, we're really excited about. And then finally partnerships, um, we scrapped their code, completely revamped their product, um, moved from being a standalone product to being an ingredient brand. And um, then began uh, reaching out to some competitors with some NDAs to share with them what we're doing, and and uh, suggest politely that with their thousand-person sales teams, they would do a lot better job of bringing our product to customers than we could. And um, two of them, Daikin, the world's largest manufacturer of HVAC, signed an exclusive partnership with us uh, about three months ago, and then. Um, just last month, Siemens uh, also uh, joined us as an investor. And we're looking at some different things we might be able to do with them in the future. So uh, those three things, I mean, Persevere policy partnerships are three ways. On the strategy side, our strategy became more asymmetric. And, um, you know, tactically, I think uh, the webcast, some of what we've done post-webcast. Um, working with channel partners in order to use their lists and get creative about ways we're reaching customers to generate of funnel activity are also fairly asymmetric. It's
2: interesting how much of the, um, to me, uh, 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 that part of this strategy, of course, is about looking at things in new ways and finding, finding new ends. But then it, a big part of it does seem to be about recognizing uh, when to say when. Yeah. Um
1: and yeah, what your place it, is in the market. Well, how, idea, how do you yeah, kinda... three,
2: you know we started off with 3000 people and now we're down to a you know, 100 and some. Maybe we should pull the plug. Yeah. And you know a lot of people would continue to run with that marketing investment for another 5
1: years before they'd pull the plug, especially given the investment to set it up. Mm. Yeah. sunk cost yeah.
3: and all that. Yeah, marketers marketers would rather be wrong within the normal range than right outside of it. You know there's a reason why the the life expectancy of a marker in the Fortune 500, I think, is down to 25 months or 23 months or something. In the last report I saw, it's that I um, you know I think they're not trusted within the C-suite of large organizations. And I don't know if data exists at small tech startups like ours, but I'm not sure it's a whole lot better. I think there's a detachment from what customers actually care about, and I think there's a lot of folks trying really hard to play it very safe. Hey, listen, you know, I'm allocating 20% of my my spend on um, ad placement and awareness campaigns. I'm doing this type of funnel activity. We're sending out this many million spam messages. And, uh, you know, we're doing everything we could do. We joined a couple of virtual events. And, you know, it's not our fault that it's not working. Nobody, (laughs) Nobody says that, but, you know... They got to walk into your office and and Jeff, you're just looking at them going like, yeah, that's, you're playing it way too safe. I mean, this is a huge role of agencies I think in the landscape of manufacturers today. It's just suggesting some outside the box tactical approaches that are going to work a lot better than whatever they're doing.
2: I'm reminded of uh, this ongoing joke uh, I had with a, a guy that used to work with me. Um, we used to joke about starting an agency um that uh, would only ever present one idea the name of the agency was bet the farm and the idea is every time with like this is the one idea Bet <laughs> the farm on this this is it <laughs> it was like oh
1: to be fair but, we have had some of those ideas uh, it's
2: for sure but I, I you know i i hear what you're saying about marketers playing safe and
1: uh,
3: i
2: think there is some of that um but i I wonder how much of it is is that the, the C-suite um, is under this illusion that marketing works better than it actually does, to your earlier point, that maybe marketing doesn't work as well as people think it does or or, or what have you. And it, it seems like... There's just an expectation um, difference. I'm not sure that the path to success for those marketers that only last 25 months is to be more radical in what they suggest. I wonder if some of those C-suite's would accept that. You know, yeah, they
1: only just got into blogging, right?
2: They only just got behind. It's almost like like they're designed to
1: accept safe. Yeah,
3: we have we have a really good uh, investment group here. Um, You know, Breakthrough Energy Ventures. Climate Initiative, um, now Siemens. We also have a great leadership team. And I had an early conversation with our CEO before taking this job where I explained to him that his marketing was not working as good as he thinks it was. And one of the things I pointed out is that as a company, we offer guarantees to customers. Um, you know, we will guarantee you save 30 to 50 or sometimes 60% of energy savings in your building. Um, Facebook, Google, um, any ad agency none I guess I've heard of cannot offer that claim. And that's because marketing doesn't really work as good as it as we think it does. If it if it if it did, it would be very easy to offer even a very simple guarantee. And it's not. Um, if you have a 1% CTR, which is pretty good for a lot of campaigns, and if 2% of those people end up converting, you know, a 2% conversion rate after that, then you're one in 5,000, 0.02% success. And one of the things we talked about, like that would be completely unacceptable in almost every other industry. Your marketing isn't working. And if you can convince the folks within your organization that your marketing isn't working, that we don't know why our customers buy and we don't pretend to, we're just trying to influence a customer choice. If If you believe that marketing isn't working, then doesn't it follow that you should try to, turn up the dial to 11 in almost everything you're doing that you should try to really punch above your weight that your traditional trade show displays or literature or whatever is probably not good enough that it probably makes sense to spend a little more money engage in an agency um do some market research and understand who actually where your 80 20 is and just continuously reinvest in the highest roi activity um Just punch above your weight everywhere you can as often as possible. Like you can't become asymmetric unless you first have some kind, some degree of honesty about how, how lousy most of your stuff is. Uh, I love Diet Coke. You know, I don't know why I love Diet Coke, but I'm fairly sure the guys at Coke don't know either. Um, I love almost everything about what Nike does as an organization. Again, I keep moving away from manufacturing because talking about oil and gas and how much I love undersea oil and gas in the North Sea or some other manufacturing company would be kind of boring. But, uh, you know, I love Nike's um, ad campaigns. Uh, Wee and Kennedy, all the great agencies that they've used and, and, you know, just Hall of Fame campaigns. But personally, Adidas has always spoke to me as a product. I don't own any Nike products. You know, why is that? The answer is that there is um, that that marketing is not science, that that I think there's a lot of art. I don't know what you guys think, but um, it doesn't work as good as we think it does. We don't understand why our customers buy it, they don't either. So instead of pretending that we do, let's instead just turn the dial up, tell the clearest possible message to as many people as possible, make sure they hear it, get their attention, even if it ends up that they hate it.
2: I think that there's a. Um, I, I love the 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 honesty in that, and I um, I, you know, I I can't help but but largely agree. And I think too, people are very unreliable witnesses to their own behavior. I mean, people to you say you say that they don't know why they buy, and and neither do you. you. You may not know why you buy either. And you certainly, if asked in a survey or by a market research person after you purchased, why you purchased. Chances of you actually being able to answer that honestly is, or I shouldn't say honestly, because you're probably being honest, but it doesn't mean you're being truthful. Yeah. <laughs> because you, you just You may don't just know. not know. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. yeah most, most of the people who buy our products don't love it and never will. And they don't understand why they buy it. Um, that's something that's very hard to accept. It's just, that's probably as hard to accept as, um, you know, the marketing itself doesn't work as good as we think it does or our content isn't as effective or engaging as we think it is. Um, But you just, but it just feels right. You see it again and again, and it's true for you as a consumer of many B2B or B2C brands. And that I think is probably the North star that we should be using when we think about these things is, you know, does it work for me? Do I want to be having a conversation online on social media with the folks that are making my toothbrush or, you know, No, I I don't at all. And I don't want to be reading 11,000 word blog posts or, uh, you know, pillar pages or something for SEO content about them either. I don't want to engage or, um, you know, share or co-create with them. Um, It's a simple transaction. I don't care about them as much as they think they do and their marketing doesn't work as good as they think it does
2: uh I, I would beat you up a bit on the self-reference criteria there
1: <laughs> do but, it, do it. but but uh, i think, uh, yeah, think,
2: think there's a point solid is point, well, point there yeah. yeah but and i think the the advice underneath of it is uh even more solid this notion of really you're telling marketers do less
1: but do it better but
2: but and 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 ask yourself when you before you do something is this something i can i love the spinal tap reference so i'll use it again but is this something that I can dial to 11. Um, and if and if and if it isn't um, or if dialing it to 10 or 11 only gets me at the same level as where my competitors are at now then it's probably a good idea to start looking elsewhere
3: yeah we we make building controls um, they have uh, twin onboard arm processors instead of just measuring temperature and humidity we're measuring temperature humidity VOCs light sound co2 Um I like to think our tech is really, really cool. We think our tech is really, really cool. Like we're a a company that's 95% engineers with a smattering of other people. Um, But our customers don't. Our customers do not care as much as our engineering or our founder or our CEO thinks that they do. They don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what I really want to do? I really want to install some cool wireless sensors in my building so I can measure you know, uh, indoor air pollution in real time. Like, nobody has ever said that. And the realization that they don't care pushes us as a marketing organization, me as a marketing leader, to um, to really try to always be at 11. The other thing is, I think, the, the frustration that a lot of marketers feel is that within their uh, leadership teams or executive teams, there's a feeling that our product matters more to our customers that it's more unique, and that our customers understand it more than they do. Uh, And in in practice, it doesn't matter. It's not very unique. And our customers really don't understand what the heck it is that we do for them. And um, so it's not just a matter of turn up the dial to 11 on everything. It's let's figure out how to um, get customers to try our product so that they'll love our brand. Or let's get customers into a pilot. Or let's make it really clear how we're different than the 277 other clean tech companies in the smart building space today. Um, and then uh, let the customers choose. I mean, at the end of the day, we're just trying to influence customer choice. We're not trying to, we're, we're or not, we're not forcing them to to make a purchase decision. At best, we're just influencing them.
2: And in some way, it sounds like what you're trying to do is not necessarily telling them what to remember or, but you're giving them a reason to remember in some way.
3: That's right. There's a, there's a lot of great paradigms. One I love talking about is Southwest Airlines because Herb Keller uh, did this really well. And he wrote a book about this. um, I can't even plug his book because I don't know what it's called. (laughs) I kind of remember
2: it as well. And it escapes me.
3: If you remember in the early days of Southwest Airlines, they only had one route. And, uh, you know, I think it was Dallas to Houston or, San Antonio to Houston or something. It connected to three family.
2: cities, I think. Yeah, yeah kind of go. a triangle in 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 go. Texas. So they had just the
3: oldest aircraft in uh, the fleet because they were buying old Pan Am offs or whatnot, and the FAA wouldn't grant them any other routes here in the U.S. So um, it was just one route all the time. Oldest aircraft. Um, they had no first class cabin. It was it was uh, it was actually the worst domestic user experience. Let's say. Um, and what did they do? And in, in newspaper ads, they advertised $9 round trip fares to Houston, uh, you know, in Dallas or whatever city it was. And but once you got on the flight, they didn't talk about how cheap their fares were. They talked about how we love the way we fly and their flight attendants sang to them. And they had this thing called long legs and short nights where the flight attendants memorize customers' names, bring gifts for their family members, when their anniversaries are. Um, they talked about democratizing air travel, sit by whoever you want, talk about whatever you want. Um, and you understood what we love the way we fly meant when you tried the product. And I think many marketers also get that wrong. They work the opposite direction. They try to get customers to love their manufacturing brand so that they'll try their product instead of get them to try their product so that they will, um, understand your product and love your brand. And, um, I think we we have to focus on the thing uh, because we can't do everything in all channels. We have to really focus on the tactic, um, you know, the segmentation and positioning. And and I think that when you see companies get that right, it's it's really compelling. Um, We're not trying to, it's always easier to convince somebody to jump off a bridge than it is to convince them that it's a good idea. And I think uh, too often, we're trying to convince folks that, it's just, that this is a really good idea, that you need this this tech, this piece of hardware, this compound for your manufacturing process. And um, no, you don't. We want you to try this. Take the Pepsi challenge. You tell us if it works better. If it does, then we'll talk to you about how it's made with, um, you know, it's, it's all organic. It's not made with any harmful chemicals. It doesn't leave any residue in the mold. It doesn't whatever the heck the thing is. Whatever those features, advantages, benefits are, they resonate much more after you get to a demo or a pilot than they do before. So, focusing on the right place with the right message and turning that up to eleven is what what you're always trying to do, I believe.
1: Man, what a, that's a good place to leave it. Absolutely.
2: Look, anytime that we can uh, have a Spinal Tap reference, bring up the Pepsi <laughs> challenge, et cetera. So All airlines. Our, yeah, I mean, so this we'll has be. been a. Uh, yeah. A tour de force of marketing reference.
1: Yeah. So. No, really David. great conversation, David. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. It's been
2: a, a pleasure, it. David.
0: Thanks for listening to the Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at kulapartners.com slash the cooler ring. That's K U L A Partners.com slash the Cooler Ring.